Today we begin a three-part series on giving that should offer us some good preparation for the Thanksgiving holiday later in the month. This is something I do every two to three years, and this particular series I've entitled, Are You Rich uh, Toward God? And for this first uh, sermon, we turn to the 12th chapter of Luke's Gospel for a very famous parable of Jesus known as the parable of the rich fool. Uh, That text is printed for you on your bulletin. We'll use this as a unison reading and read the Word of God together. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared... Whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. I don't know what kind of medical establishments you've been to lately, but most of the hospitals and doctor's offices of which I'm aware are extremely vigilant and how they get you in in the first place, and then how many people you actually come into contact with uh, once you're there. I happened to have an appointment this past week in the urological offices of Levine Cancer Institute in Charlotte, through whom I had my original cancer surgery about two and a half years ago. And I have a checkup with them every six months, which is pretty common for most cancer patients, and uh, I got a good report, by the way. But you're basically met at the door on the main floor with a temperature check and then a lot of different questions about what kind of symptoms you may have or not been having over the past several weeks. And then they don't ask, but squirt hand sanitizer in your hands, and, and you deal with that as you go off to whatever particular office you're going to, and the urological offices in that building are on the fifth floor in one whole end of the building. I mean, it's a huge waiting area and a lot of different rooms and hallways and that sort of thing, and when I walked into that waiting area, there wasn't a soul to be seen, nor was there anyone sitting behind the desk. Now, you know, we've heard of ghost towns out west, but I'm telling you, it was just like being in a ghost building. I mean, as I was standing there in the waiting room,
waiting area, I began to wonder, well, I wonder how I'm going to get in touch with somebody to let them know I'm even here. And about that time, someone walked out from behind a closed door and said, someone will be with you in a few minutes. About five minutes later, a nurse came out there and got me and took me down this long hallway and started asking me the same kind of questions I'd already answered downstairs. And uh, I was telling her, you know, this is just like being in a ghost town. And she explained, she said, well, we try and schedule it that way. So because the fewer people you come into contact with, the less chance you have of contracting the virus. And, of course, that makes perfect sense. I understand that. It's just that in my mind, I was thinking back to the last time I had been in that office before the pandemic when there were people everywhere. I mean, there were a lot of people in the waiting area, and when you walked down one of those back halls, you, you saw doctors and nurses and patients going to and fro. I mean, it was so different. It was like the difference between night and day. I was very impressed with their vigilance keeping everyone safe. Now, the reason I tell you that story is because Jesus is talking about vigilance here at the beginning of this parable as well. When he says, be on your guard against all covetousness or greed, as the NIV has it, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. In the grammar of the Greek of that phrase, be on your guard, that verb is a present imperative, which means that you're to be on your guard on and on and on and on and on. That work is never finished. It's something that you do every single day. We can see that kind of watchfulness with the hospitals and with the doctor's offices during this pandemic, and we need that same kind of vigilance against letting possessions rule our lives. That's what Jesus is saying there. This is something that's always going to be with you, and so you've got to be on your guard. You've got to be ready. He's making a a blanket sort of statement here about the attitude we bring to what we own, the things we have, whether they're homes or or cars, or antiques, or art collections, or clothes, or whatever they happen to be. Things do not give life that is real. The real life comes from a relationship with God, who gives us all that we have in the first place, and to whom we are responsible for how we use those things with which we've been blessed. As one scholar put it, God alone is Lord of life, and a person truly lives only when he is rich toward God in faith, obedience, and service. And to make this point very clear, Jesus tells a story, a story we know as the parable of the rich fool. And he says, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. Now, as you're aware, Jesus is a wonderful storyteller. And he uses words for a purpose 
And so we really need to look at what he's saying in the first line of this parable. The land of a rich man produced plenty. What do we find out from that, that first line? We find out we're dealing with a wealthy individual, someone who's rich, who's obviously a farmer. And then we find out something else. We find out that God abundantly blessed this man. Because the land produced plentifully, not the man. You see the difference? The land produced plentifully. This confirms what is taught in Psalm 104, a psalm about God as the creator of all we know and see. Because in that psalm, the psalmist is talking about God when he says, You cause the grass to grow for the cattle, and you cause plants to grow for man. God is the one who makes this happen. Now, Paul picks up on this truth in 1 Corinthians 3 and makes a spiritual point out of it concerning preaching and teaching and spiritual growth in our own lives when he writes, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. It's all about God. He's the one who makes things happen, whether we're talking in the physical realm or whether we're talking in the spiritual realm. However, this farmer, this wealthy man, has not figured that out. He could just as easily have been in a time of drought. Or he could have experienced fierce storms like we've been seeing lately that would have destroyed his crops. But God blessed him with an abundant harvest. It's one of those kinds of harvests you might only see once in a lifetime or once every 20 years. He should have had the same attitude as the psalmist in Psalm 118 when he says, this is the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. But he doesn't have that kind of attitude. Because he doesn't have that kind of vision, that kind of perspective. You see, he's not asking the question of what shall I do with all of this abundance with which God has blessed me. That's not what he's asking. Instead, he says, what shall I do? I have nowhere to store Store something means what? You're going to hold on to it. It's not going anywhere. In other words, he has the American mentality. And what I mean by that is, have you noticed, like I have, the proliferation of storage unit businesses in our fair city? I mean, they have been built all over the place. And, and they're still building them. I saw a, a, another new sign out uh, on 901 near Newport just the other day where another one's coming on the corner opposite a new one that was built about two years ago. You know, this is the American mentality. We seem to like to hold on to lots of things, so much so that we have to have storage units for them, whether it's a a 6 by 10 or a 10 by 20 or a 20 by 30 or, or whatever it happens to be. 
did a little bit of research on this because I was just curious. There are more than 60,000 of those in America alone. 60,000. And it's a $9 billion, with a B, dollar business annually in this nation alone. Now, I'm not condemning you if you have a storage unit somewhere. There are good reasons to have storage units. We had a couple when we were downsizing and moving stuff around and all that before we finally settled. But there are also sinful reasons for having storage units. We need to be careful, vigilant even, about how strongly we hold on to things. Now, when we talk about the parables of Jesus, we need to remember there are different types of parables. If you've ever done a study on the parables, you may remember that. You know, there are parables of the kingdom, and there are parables about salvation. There are parables about the Christian life. There are parables of judgment. And there are also a type of parable that some people would refer to, parables of wisdom and folly. And with a name like the parable of the rich fool, it's easy to see that our parable falls into that particular category, a parable of wisdom and folly. And if we're thinking about wisdom, of course, the the primary place to go for wisdom literature in the Old Testament is the book of Proverbs. And the book of Proverbs has lots to say about our possessions and our attitude toward them, you can see little verses scattered here and there throughout the book of Proverbs, but especially uh, do we seem to get good teaching in the 11th chapter where there are several verses grouped there together. I'll give you just a couple of them. One man gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. A liberal man will be enriched, and one who waters will himself be watered. You hear what he's saying there? Solomon's telling us basically in some different language uh, that you reap what you sow. That's a, a spiritual principle we see again and again in both Testaments in Scripture. And it's easy to see from verses like those in Proverbs that those who live wisely are those who display an attitude of giving from those things with which they've been blessed. This is why the rich man is called a fool in the parable. He's taken the attitude that it's all his. He's set for life. He can retire early. He doesn't have to worry about doing anything anymore. Doesn't that sound? That's, that's, you know, that's kind of how we're raised, many of us. You know, and we hear this in the world all the time. You want to work hard and hit it big and make as much as you can, then you can retire early and you can enjoy the rest of your life and do whatever you want to and travel here and travel there and do this and do that. But as verse 20 puts it, God said to him, Fool. This night your soul is required of you, and the things you've prepared, whose will they be? And so Jesus summarizes, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. 
on the surface, it's somewhat easy to see that we're not to hold on to the things of this world too tightly because they can be gone in a moment. Now, in the case of this parable, it's the person who's gone instead of the possessions, which is an interesting twist on what we normally see in life. But with all of the hurricanes we've seen lately on the news, you know, we, we ought to know better than anyone something that's here today can be gone tomorrow because we've seen whole homes swept away in these floods. Just this past week in Bon Clarkham, we've seen entire roads swept away, roads that were there now have a big chasm, a big ditch in them between the two pieces of pavement. If there's something you own, you are convinced you could not live without it. And I would be so far, go so far as to say not just something you own, not just a possession, but some person you're convinced you cannot live without. You had better think again. Because that possession for that person could be here today and gone tomorrow. But something else is happening in this parable. As one scholar put it, the chief reason the man was foolish is that he allowed his concern for riches to eclipse the far more important concern that he should have for his soul. Now, we can tell from reading the parable that he has no eternal perspective. He's not thinking about his soul. He's thinking about having fun and partying the rest of his life. I just wonder how often that's true of you and me, that we're not thinking about eternity. We live our lives and we make our decisions based upon what we see and what we know, forgetting that there's a whole other spiritual dimension out there, and that our time on earth is simply a drop in the bucket compared to eternity. We spend so much time and so much effort on the here and now, and we're not thinking about eternity at all. James Montgomery Boyce has something interesting to say in his little book on the parables. He says he did not value his soul, so the Lord comes down to the level on which he's operating and talks about his possessions only. His argument is, you fool, this very night your soul will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? And, and Boyce goes on to say the one thing that might possibly get through to such a man was the thought of someone else enjoying what he'd spent his lifetime to accumulate. In other words, Jesus is going right down to the basis desire. Who's going to have what you've worked your life to have? You're not going to get to enjoy it. As one uh, commentator so eloquently put it, this is the ultimate you-can't-take-it-with-you-have. Now, we talk about that oftentimes. That's true. You can't take it with you. 
That's where Jesus is preaching. One of the many things he's teaching in this parable. As the old Spanish proverb has it, shrouds have no coffers. Obviously, as a fool, this is the wrong way to live our lives. That's what Jesus labels this wealthy man, a man who had obviously been blessed in his life. You're a fool. Jesus points us toward the right way to live at the end of the passage as he sums it up in his final three words. He has us to think about what it means to be rich toward God. We are to live not so we are rich in this world necessarily, but rich toward God, which means we're to be rich in spiritual things, things that last as opposed to those things where moth and rust consume and where thieves break in and steal. As we try to employ this kind of eternal perspective in, in how we live our lives, we might be thinking, well, what are some spiritual things? What are some spiritual treasures? Where should I be spending my time and my effort? Well, one of the great spiritual treasures is love. As Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 13, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And then he goes on to say there, love never ends. Loving God with heart, soul, and mind and loving our neighbors as ourselves uh, sums up the law and everything in it. As Jesus teaches in Matthew 22, we are to make love, therefore, our aim. That's what we shoot for each and every day. But another spiritual treasure is faith. Speaking of possessions, think about what James says about those who might be poor in this world. And in his second chapter, the fifth verse, he says, Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he's promised to those who love him? We are to be rich in faith, and faith lasts forever. It abides just like love and hope, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 13. Yet another spiritual treasure is good works. In his first letter, the sixth chapter, Paul tells Timothy to teach those under his care to be rich in what? In good deeds, liberal and generous thus laying up for themselves a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of the life which is life indeed. As we are rich in those works that God has prepared for us beforehand, then we are rich toward God. You know, that's what Paul tells us in Ephesians. God's prepared these good works for us beforehand. As we work the works of God, we are rich toward God. In other words, when we're rich toward God, we're living our lives in a way that He instructs through His Holy Word. This Word, which also teaches us it lasts forever. And we are living, therefore, in a way which glorifies Him through love, through faith, through good works, through service, through compassion, whatever words you want to use, 
so that we share with others in the way in which God has shared with us. And as we think about what this parable really teaches, then Mark 8 should have something to say for us, that question that Jesus has in that chapter when he says, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and to forfeit his soul? Basically, this is what happened to the rich man in the parable. He had, he had really gained so much, and then he forfeited his soul. So what about your life, and what about mine? I entitled this sermon, What Shall I Do? That's the question uh, the rich farmer asked in the parable. What shall I do? That's a question we need to ask every single day. Are we going to live as a fool? Or are we going to live in a way so that we are rich toward God? It's an important question to ask, but even more important to answer in the decisions we make, the priorities we have. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together.